Be seated, please. On behalf of all of those other basses who couldn't sing that low, thanks for bringing that up. We've spent the last uh, several weeks discussing pride, humility, and self-esteem, and today we're going to put a little bow on that, and we're going to send it on its merry way. What are we going to study next? Well, I don't know. Uh, We're going to have a few weeks where we'll have a few um, different sermons. Uh, Specifically, next week, we're going to have the youth rally. Same time, same place, uh, but our sermon will be focusing on the theme of the youth rally. And so this morning, as we kind of uh, tie up this series we've been doing on pride, humility, and the self-esteem, we want to explore the question, how do we develop humility? And, And on the surface, that actually seems like a very simple and a very straightforward thing one would think, but yet as you look closely at the answer, you begin to realize there are some, is some complexity in how we might go about answering that question. In fact, I, f- I find there's kind of three common ways that people answer the question, how do you develop humility? And the first will say, I use the word on the PowerPoint accidentally, but maybe the best word is supernaturally. I mean, if you're going to be humble, God's just simply going to make you humble, that that's not something that you in any way will be able to contribute to. Or you can become humble indirectly. If you set out to be humble, you're sure to fail. But if you set out to be more godlike, that in the process of doing that, you might find yourself to be more humble. Or the other option is, uh, that word should be pronounceable. Somebody say it for me. Yeah, am I having a stroke or something? I don't know. Intentionally. That, That you intentionally set about and decide, I'm going to grow in humility. And I think it's reasonable to say there's a reason to be a little skeptical, that that a person can set about deciding to be humble and then accomplish or achieve that. So imagine a guy named Jim who at the beginning of the year said his New Year's resolution was to become more humble. And his friend who knows that's his New Year's resolution in the middle of the year says, so how's it coming, Jim? And he says, oh man, it has been amazing. I am 10 times more humble now than I was in January, and I'm really proud about how humble I am. You see how there's a little bit of a problem there? Or imagine Joe focusing on his humility and saying to a friend, like, I really feel like I'm more humble, but I need to know, can you affirm that I'm a more humble person? And as C.S. Lewis would say, a person who is obsessed about how humble they are, are still obsessed about themselves. And so really then, therefore, they're not humble, whether they feel humble or not. And so we need to recognize that there is this paradoxical element or aspect as we talk about how we develop humility. But, but it does seem clear from the words of Scripture that, that we do intentionally develop humility. I mean, Jesus invites us to learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So, so Jesus believes that we can learn his ways of gentleness and his ways of humility. Paul certainly seems that, to think that we can develop humility whenever he says that we should have our attitude or our mindset should be the same as that was in Christ Jesus, that there are things that we can do as we grow in humility. And those are the things we want to explore in our sermon this morning. Now, we're going to focus a lot of our time in Romans 12, but we're going to start off in Romans 1. And in kind of in an ironic way, we'll look at what Paul describes as the complete anti-God state of mind. Paul says the problem there of the unrepentant, the wicked Gentiles, is that they serve the creature rather than the creator. And they, they, they develop this anti-God person that has these three aspects or elements. And the first is the affective. The anti-God person has their desires and passions are contrary 
to everything God wants of them. And in fact, Paul says that God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts and Paul, God gave them up to their degrading passions. The second aspect that is corrupted by the selfless person or by the selfish person is behavioral. The, the very aspect of what you do with your body. And so Paul there says that, that those who participate in this kind of wickedness, they degrade their bodies. And the third element is cognitive, how you think. Your thoughts, your mindset, your outlook. And God gave those up to a debased mind. So the anti-God person has a problem with their affections, a problem with their behaviors, and a problem with their cognitive thinking. And much of Romans chapter 3 through 11 is about what God in Christ through the Spirit has done to resolve and address this issue of sin that has corrupted. He talks about the way we enter into a new relationship with God through the waters of baptism. And then Paul begins to, to just briefly touch on what the implications are for those who walk in this new life with Christ. And so it's in Romans 12 that Paul really begins to unpack what are the implications for us as individuals who walk in this new life with Christ. And he begins by saying, I appeal to you, therefore. And, and, and the therefore is pointing us back because of something that Paul has just said. And the discussion can happen about how far back is Paul pointing. And I think he's pointing to the whole of Romans 3 through 11. That, that everything that God and Christ has done, that, that in light of this new relationship that you have with God, therefore I'm going to make certain appeals of you. And this is the appeal. That by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to discern what the will of God is what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you notice any echoes from Romans chapter 1? There's several that are here, and the first we can point out is the worship. Romans 1, people worship that which is created instead of the creator. And what we find that the truly renewed, the transformed, the redeemed person, what they do is they participate in a spiritual act of worship. The new person in Christ will worship in a new or unique way. Another thing that differs between Romans 1 and Romans 12 is what people do with their bodies. In Romans 1, people presented their bodies to the lusts of their heart. But in Romans chapter 12, the body is presented to God as a living sacrifice. What Christians do is they give their bodies to be subjected to the very will of God, not to their own longings or desires. Romans 6.12 says it this way, Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion over your mortal bodies to make them obey the passions. So instead of being obedient to our own passions with our bodies, they're now subjected to the will of God. And the third direct aspect that we see here in Romans 1, we talked about the debased mind, which Paul now points out in Romans 12, that is, is a mind that is renewed. And it's renewed not by focusing on the self, but it's renewed by seeing and, and appreciating the very will of God. So we're a renewed person. They're going to experience a change in their affections. That's the affections that lead to what they do with their bodies. And they're going to see a change in their cognitive way of thinking. Now, Paul will take all of these things as a very general teaching, like we saw last week in Ephesians, a general teaching, old life, new life. And then he's going to apply it in some very, very specific ways. And does anybody want to guess what the specific ways of a transformed life is going to be applied to? It's going to be applied to community living what it looks like for transformed people to live in the midst of community. 
As Douglas Moo says, we live our transformed existence in community. And as we live in community, guess what's going to be the one key attribute or virtue or character trait that's going to be necessary to live in a unified way as a community? Once again, Paul's going to touch on the topic of humility. Because when you get a group of people together, one thing that's going to be necessary for them to live in community is humility. So Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Humility requires and involves a cognitive aspect. It is about the way that you think. Humility humility requires having a proper self-assessment. In fact, if you look at verse 3, in, in the Greek, there's four times the word mind is used. Most of your English translations, three times. A new self in Christ means you're going to begin to think in new ways. There are going to be certain ways we stop thinking and certain ways that we continue thinking. Here's how not to think. We do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. This idea or concept of thinking highly refers to something in the words of James Dunn, that goes beyond proper bounds. As a kid, were you ever told you could play in the yard, but you can't go past the fence? Or you can play in the yard, but you can't go on the road? Those are the boundaries. Paul is saying, in how highly you think of yourself, there are proper boundaries in place for those who have this transformed mind and transformed life. So to grow in humility means we begin to think of ourselves in a way that does not see ourselves as more superior than we really are. We look at ourselves in a way that, that, that's not more significant than we really are. We, we don't see ourselves as more important than we really are. This letter to the Romans was addressed to, to two groups of people who really have been not unified in how they've been living, the Jews and the Gentiles. There's been a lot of debate and disagreement in, in their midst. And in fact, at different times in Romans, Paul will say each group thinks that they are superior to the others. He begins early in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, talking about the Jews and their view of the Gentiles. And the Jews boast in their relationship to God, Romans 2, 17. They boast in their relationship to God. So they look at the Gentiles and they say, you know, we are better than you because we have this long history with God. And that superiority, it begins to break down the bonds of unity. But the Gentiles, who now that they are brought into the people of God, they themselves begin to develop a superior mindset. Romans 11.20, They, the Jews, were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand only through faith, so do not become proud, but stand in awe. There is something about a group of people who have a special relationship with God, develops in them a propensity to think they are what? Superior than others. Not just as individuals, but as groups, we can look at other people and say, well, God, I just thank God that I'm not like, and you can name any other group of people. And Paul is saying the humble person does not think of themselves superior or more highly than others. Don't overestimate your value. Don't overestimate your worth. And what would be wonderful, and what I would love to see is for Paul to say, here's where exactly the line is. Here's, here's, Think not thinking too highly. Here's the mark of highly. But Paul doesn't, and maybe because of that, it's better to underestimate our own value than certainly to overestimate it. But after talking about how not to think, Paul will then tell us how to think. To think of ourselves, he says, with sober judgment. And once again, this is a word that has the idea of a boundary associated with it. 
James Dunn says that the word denotes modesty and restraint. And in classical terms, it meant the golden mean. So, so, so this moderate estimation, that's what we're going for. This really is the word that talks about what Goldilocks finds. Not, not too hot, not too cold, but just right. So Paul is saying that, that a humble person is going to think about themselves in a way that it's not too high. But we're also going to recognize they're not going to think about themselves in a way that is too lowly of themselves. Because we recognize, as Paul's going to go on to say in verses 4 through 8 of Romans 12, that, that we have different functions. We have different ways that we work and that we serve. And, and imagine there being a church where there is an opening for one of these areas of ministry. And everyone said, oh, well, I'm humble. I'm not good at that. And oh, I'm humble. I'm not. Okay. Well, we're not going to do that ministry because nobody knows how to do it. No, oh, let's do this ministry. And said, so oh, no, I can't do that. I'm not good enough at that. What Paul is saying is he's encouraging people to recognize the ways they have been gifted by God. And that people need to recognize that and be involved in those ministries. That's sober judgment. Sober judgment is having a right assessment about yourself. It's not too high and it's not too low, but you find the right assessment. Randy Harris kind of addresses this a little bit. Uh, Let's come back here as Paul speaks about the source of ability. He says, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. It's really, really important that you are aware of the source of what you're able to do. You can credit one of two sources. You can credit either yourself, which is not humble, or you can credit God for the ways that he has equipped you and he has blessed you and that he has enabled you. And so Randy Harris, as he's a college professor, as he teaches freshman students, he says he often has to remind them, he says, the problem is that you were born on third pace and think you've hit a triple. And isn't that kind of typical of a lot of us? I mean, we think everything that we have and everywhere that we are and all that we do, that somehow we are the source of all of those things. And what Paul is reminding us is of God's giftedness. So we develop humble thinking. We think soberly, moderately of ourselves. And maybe some of the questions that we can ask ourselves as we think about our humble thoughts is, do I always feel the need to be the center of attention? If I were at risk of doing one thing, would it be of thinking too highly of myself? Or would it be of thinking too lowly of myself? And if I had to choose between personal gain, but loss to the community, or personal loss, but gain to the community, which would I choose? And for Paul, the humble person, would choose an individual loss in order there could be a gain and a benefit to the community of believers. But in addition to this cognitive aspect, humility requires an embodied or a behavioral way of living. This is down now in verse 16 of Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you actually are. When I present my body as a living sacrifice, that means I'm going to begin to do things with my body, behave in in ways that are humble. There's a guy named Miser Eckhart, and he says, no soul can really do anything except through the body to which it is attached. And, and, And that's an important recognition. A lot of people will say, well, I'm just a really humble minded person. But that humility should be expressed in what you do with your body. Not just how you think about things, but how you interact with your body. Now, there's a discussion whether Paul is addressing either one of two things. He's saying, do not associate with either lowly things, or he's saying, do not associate with lowly people. And maybe the best way to apply this is to apply it to both. That we should, as Christians, associate with lowly things, and we should also ensure that we are associating with lowly people. So let's talk about this new mindset that that leads us into a, a bodily practice where we do things below our pay grade. 
Paul says we should associate with lowly things, what we would call today service. Can you ever think of a time where Jesus did something in his body that was below his own status? Probably the the place most of our minds might go is to, to John chapter 13 there, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And then he says, I've given you an example that what? That you should follow. Paul doesn't, or John does not want us to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm so glad you do things like that. That just encourages me and it makes me feel great. This is an example that we would follow. Calls us into service. One of my uh, spiritual mentors was doing a class one uh, Christmas break. And the study was on Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. Um, I only remember two things about the class. One is I remember that we were asked to memorize that passage and the second thing was, and this is a guy who is, is really well, well known, um, was, you know, you'd see him at lectureships and all these sort of events. And he said, anytime I start struggling with my own pride, I ask where the closest toilet is and I go and I clean it. And that's significant because he realizes that service is an embodied thing. Sometimes when my mind gets thinking a little bit high of myself, I need to find something lowly to do. And in the very act of doing lowly things, I am reminded that I'm not as special as I think, that I'm not as important as I think. And so as we think about this week, I I want you to be asking yourself, is there something you can do this week that is below your pay grade? Something that you do in service, and that by participating in that activity, you are reminded that you are simply a lowly person. But it's also possible Paul is talking about doing things with people of a lowly status. And yes, I realize there's a catch-22 here. In order to recognize somebody is of a lowly status, you have to think you are then of a higher status of them. And some people say, hey, you can't do that. You can't say there's a lowly status and I'm a high status. But yet in Jesus' ministry, that's a very common thing that Jesus does. Jesus recognizes people are on the fringes of society. People are often left out and neglected. For Jesus, it was children, prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners. These were all the kinds of people that Jesus said, I'm going to associate with, even though others won't. And maybe as we look further at Jesus' ministry, a good contrast is in Mark 10, where, where Mark 10, 41, the text says, when the 10 heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. What was it that they heard? They heard James and John had gone to Jesus, hey, we want these special seats, one on your right hand, one on your left. And when the others heard, they became angry. Why? Because they wanted those positions. You know, they, they jumped them to, to getting this opportunity. But earlier in that text, there's a text about people who are bringing children to Jesus. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. And so then Mark 10, um, actually now, this is Mark 10, 14. I think I read that backwards. This is now Mark 10, 14. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. We are likely to get upset indignant about different things. What the, what the person who is not humble gets upset with is whenever somebody else is trying to take away their advantage or their privilege or their possibility. What is it that Jesus gets upset about? Jesus gets upset when people are dishonoring, disrespecting, limiting those of a lower stature. And so the invitation then for us is to recognize the kinds of people that Jesus wants us to be around. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, hey, whenever you give a banquet, don't invite all the rich people and don't invite all, all of your friends over here. But instead, who should we invite? Luke 14, 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, 
the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. As I think about doing, associating with lowly people, I think about um, a guy named uh, Henry Nowen. He spent 25 years teaching in prestigious universities. He taught at Notre Dame, he taught at Yale, taught at Harvard. And after all that, he decided he would go and he'd work at a home with people with intellectual disabilities. And he said when he went there, it was the first context he'd ever been in where all of the books that he wrote, all of the, the things that he had said didn't matter to anyone. They didn't care about your, your, your credentials. But in fact, what he found in that community was people were bothered or most pressed by the question, are you going to be home tonight? That, that's what mattered to them. And he said in interacting with these people with intellectual disabilities, he came to find that, that as a people, we are asking ourselves these questions. Is there anybody who loves me? Is there anybody who really cares? Is there anybody who wants to stay home for me? And there are people outside of these doors who are asking those questions constantly. Is there anyone who cares about me? And what the truly humble person will do is they will spend time in the presence of those of lower status. And so I want to encourage you to keep your eyes out this week for someone that God might be calling you to associate with in order to bless them, but also because God wants to transform you through that conversation. I was going to encourage you to find somebody of a lower status and invite them over and do something, but then this week everyone would be paranoid, like, what? They invited me over? They think I'm that person? So we're not going to do that, but just simply be aware of the kinds of people that God is calling you to be with. What God wants to do is he wants to restore our lives. He wants to transform them. He wants to do that by transforming our affections, the things we care about, by transforming our behaviors, the things we do, and by transforming our mindset, the very ways we think. And most of all, God wants to do these things in order to restore communities of people. We are living in a day and an age and a time when it is hard, hard, hard to live in the midst of community. In fact, the easiest thing to do in a community is to pack your bags, and to go and to try and find somebody who just thinks a little bit more like you. And when you start on that journey, I guarantee you're going to find smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller groups of people that you actually think the same as. What is it that we need to have unity, to have fellowship, to have community? What we've been learning is that we need to have humility. In the very words of Paul, this is what Paul appeals to for the congregation in Romans and I want to offer this as an appeal as we conclude this morning. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may be able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and be gracious to you and give you peace. And as we go from here, we remember we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as we sing this next song, uh, I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. If you want somebody to pray with, um, if you want to talk about what your journey of humility has been like, uh, we just invite you to come and find us in the back while we stand and sing this next song.